somebody with an immune system like me, adding that extra load of you know these anti-nutrients just causes that extra level of inflammation that the body just can't handle. I want the most bioavailable forms of any vitamin or mineral or nutrients in my diet. Fat starts to accumulate in other places where you don't want it, like around the organs, because the fat cells are stuffed. It, it's definitely a danger, you know, even at 110 pounds, if, if you don't take care of it. 90% of the insulin required by the body when eating low carb was for background basal insulin. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. It was such an honor to have Craig and Rick on the show today. I've been following the work of Maria and Craig for so many years. I absolutely loved having his wife, Maria, on the show before. I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. And it was so great to have Craig on today. And we dive deep into so many things that I know you guys care about. Things like, is fat a free food on low-carb and keto? Hint, it's probably not. In other words, why you maybe shouldn't add fat to your meals. The concept of shrinking fat cells rabbit holes into one of my favorite things, gluconeogenesis, addressing health conditions with the carnivore diet, and we dive into Craig's personal journey with Lyme. So for people who have struggled with that or chronic fatigue in general or autoimmune health conditions or other chronic disease states, I think you'll really find today's episode really encouraging and motivating. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. And you can get a discount on Craig and Maria's incredible books as well as their programs. I cannot recommend this enough. Just go to ketoadapted.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the code Melanie Avalon. So again, that is ketoadapted.com slash Melanie Avalon with the code Melanie Avalon for a discount. The show notes for today's show will be at melanieavalon.com slash Craig Emmerich. That's C-R-A-I-G-E-M-M-E-R-I-C-H. Those show notes will have a full transcript as well as links to everything that we talked about. So definitely check that out. And there will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post. And again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market 
ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S.? 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this fabulous conversation with Craig Emmerich. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So previously on the show, I had Maria Emmerich on, and that was a very popular episode. And I just really adore her. She is amazing. She's doing so much in the low carb, the keto, the carnivore sphere. And in that episode, we dive deep into that whole approach to diet and fitness and health and her experience having a family and doing all of that. And it was just a really beautiful, wonderful episode. And interestingly, during the episode, there were quite a few questions where she literally said, oh, these are perfect questions for my husband, Craig. You should have him on. So it was on my to-do list to have you on anyways. And then a while ago now, she reached out and said that you were doing podcast interviews. So I was like, of course, yes, this is perfect. We were just talking before this for friends who listen to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast as well. Craig and Maria are friends with my co-host on that show, Vanessa Spina. So it's all just a really you know, 
small, beautiful, wonderful, wonderful world. We'll talk about it, I'm sure, in today's show. But so Craig actually graduated with a degree in electrical engineering, and he researches nutrition and does all of the fabulous work with Maria. And he has his own journey with Lyme that I'm sure we will talk about. So I just have so many questions. Craig, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Melanie, for having me on. I'm excited. So, so many directions we could go with this. I sort of want to ask you the like super random questions that <laughs> that I asked with Maria, but I'll get to those. I also asked listeners for question about Lyme, but just to introduce you to the listeners for those who are not familiar, and even for those who do know you, your personal story. So what came first, keto or the Lyme? Like what happened with all of that and led to what you're doing today? It was an interesting journey, right? So we started out with Maria coming down this path because of her health issues. You know, she had PCOS and acid reflux and, you know, extra weight she was carrying around and different health issues. And she went down this path to figure out how to fix herself. And she was able to do that. You know, myself, it took a little longer to come around to the diet side because I didn't have any health issues at the time. I had, you know, it was probably 20, you know, 30 pounds over that I could extra weight I could lose, but I wasn't any health issues beyond that. And so it took me five, six years after her to kind of come around. And I mainly did it because I just felt so much better when I ate this way. And so then, you know, that's, I don't know, 18 years now that I've been eating this way. And so I was doing great, lost that extra 30 pounds, thriving, and then suddenly started having this back pain uh, about nine years ago. I initially thought it was an old football injury that I had from high school. But it kept moving up my back and into my shoulders and my neck and reduced more pain and and reduced flexibility and all that. So I finally, after a couple years of trying to get this figured out, that's about six years ago now, finally got diagnosed properly as having Lyme disease. And so being that I had eaten so cleanly for so long before getting the Lyme, I think it was kind of a little bit of a blessing and a curse because it, in, you know, we have so many clients that when they have Lyme disease, they come and they eat keto and they do so much better, like almost all their pain goes away and all this stuff. And so being that I was keto for that long, I think it enabled me to go way longer than I probably should have let it go before getting a proper diagnosis and treatment. So I've got a little bit of chronic issues as a result from that, from, from the chronic Lyme disease that has turned into chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which we we can get into as well. And that triggered an autoimmune reaction within my body to which I now have ankylosing spondylitis. So that's kind of where I ended up here. (laughs) Wait, what was that last thing you said? Ankylosing spondylitis. It's sort of like arthritis in the spine and hips and, but it, you know, the, the, you'll actually be calcified and fuse like my, my neck now, most of the vertebrae in my neck are like fused together with calcium. It's like one bone. So I can't really turn my neck too much, but yeah, it's, it's not a fun disease. That's for sure. (laughs) Wow. Is that reversible at all? No, you can manage it and hopefully slow progression, if you will. That's right now I'm going through some SIRS chronic inflammatory response protocols to try to, you know, at least get the symptoms and progression to stop And that's what I'm kind of, that's where I'm at right now is, you know, diet definitely still helps. You know, if I, I, what I did was about six years ago when I got officially diagnosed, I switched to more carnivore diet and it did help with pain. 
My joint pain definitely improved when I eat, eat just carnivore, no plants. When I do deviate from that and get too much plants in my diet, I will notice my, my pain flare up. Wow. Okay. So many things. I personally am really interested in this. I received a Lyme diagnosis as well, and it was a rabbit hole of confusion, especially with the way that they diagnose it and stuff. Do you know Stephen Buhner, his book, Healing Lyme? Yeah. I actually recorded, when I was like in the throes of it, I recorded the the audiobook for it for Audible. That was a very long book to record. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I was like I was like note to self do not do this again. I did our keto book. I read I read our keto book. Oh my gosh, it took so long to get Oh, with all the recipes I bet too. Yeah, well in the you know, repetition, different parts, get it all. But in any case, okay, so many questions. Your diagnosis was it a positive by conventional interpretations or by functional but not conventional interpretations yeah so that's the the thing was that's why it took so many like two three years for me to get properly diagnosed because initially i you know i'm i'm in this space i understand the body fairly well at that point already and it sounded a lot like lyme disease to me but then i went into the doctor i said you know can i get a, a lyme test they did the standard Western blot Lyme test, which, you know, I now know is like 70% false negatives. You know, they say you don't have it when you really do. And so at that point I was like, okay, well, what is it then? And I went off into this rat rabbit hole of, you know, Lyme possibility. And I was lucky enough to have somebody we were associated with who's been through terrible Lyme treatments and, and everything. And he had, they actually helped author the book Toxic which is another by Neil Nathan. It's another good Lyme book. And so I had a lot of insight into some of the latest protocols and this and that. And so they led me towards the Igenix Lyme test or the Galaxy Labs. Those, those two are much better Lyme tests that are able to diagnose Lyme and co-infections. When I got that done, it said, I do have Lyme. I, I think also Babesia, which would explain the, uh, I, I was anemic, had low bl- red blood cell counts, even though, you know, I eat tons of red meats and all this stuff. Babesia can, can lower red blood cell counts. So then I started on a long journey of trying to treat all that, treat Lyme. And, and I mean, we could do a whole episode about Lyme disease for sure. Today, a lot of the top experts don't even talk about treating Lyme, trying to kill the Lyme when, it be, when you're in that chronic state where you've been years of, you know, pro, years of symptoms and, and chronic Lyme. It's more about you know, building up your immune system and get helping your body to fight and get just get rid of the obstacles to let your body fight versus, you know, all the traditional stuff, which I initially did when I was diagnosed, like I did three months or sorry, nine months of three high powered antibiotics taken simultaneously for nine straight months, you know, all these different cowden protocols, all these protocols, none of it really did a lot for me at that point. Looking back, I think it's because it wasn't the Lyme. You know, you said you were tested positive. I've seen some things where up to, I don't know, 90% of people that test positive for Lyme don't even have symptoms. And so their immune system is taking care of it. So that's kind of, you know, back to let the body or help the body to take care of it itself. Wow. Okay. I have some questions from there. And so, yeah, so you sort of answered this because we had questions about treating it. Nancy said she was curious about how to best address the combo of Lyme. I don't know what she's referring to. She said of Lyme and that popular pharma intervention 
that much of the population participated in over the last few years? Oh, I'm guessing they're meaning ivermectin. I think that's what's being alluded to there, but... Did they use ivermectin for Lyme? There's people that talk about it. I did it like five years ago before all the COVID and crap as part of my Lyme treatment. It was one of the antiparasitics I did. And I, I didn't really notice any difference myself. And one of the things, here's the thing about Lyme disease. And, and I think this is true across the board. What will work for one person will not work for another. It, it, I mean, it, you could have a protocol that just completely eradicates all symptoms for this person and you use it on the next Lyme par- patient and it does nothing. And so, you know, that's what I have gone through in the last six years of just treatment after treatment after treatment with no real change and in symptoms. So that's that, you know, that can be really frustrating for people with chronic Lyme. You got to keep fighting and looking for the right answer. And there's so many things out there. You, you can't imagine how many things people send us, but yeah, it's, it's just finding what works for you. Maria was asking how to address it. And she said her husband has had it on and off for years and it never seems to permanently go away. Amy said she heard that it goes through cycles in your body. Do you find that as well, that it goes through cycles? Most people with chronic Lyme will will have a uh, seasonality to it. In other words, in the winter, I definitely flare up a lot. And that's one of the reasons we started going to Hawaii longer and longer is the winters are really rough on me. I mean, I you know, it's been a couple of years since we've been here in the winter, but the last time that we stayed longer into the winter, like December, January, I would get to the point where I'd be on crutches because my hips would hurt so bad. But, you know, in Hawaii, I do a lot better. It's something about the cold that just does not do well with my body. Do you remember getting bit by a tick? You know, it's kind of interesting. If we go back, it was right around the time we built the house we're currently in. And this house is in the middle of... 40 acres uh, of old oak trees and forest, beautiful setting. And I'd come out here a lot to, you know, initially plan out the house. And then as they're working on the house, I'm out here a lot talking to the workers and working with them and there'd be ticks on and off. And, you know, it's just when you're in an area like this and you like to be in the woods, ticks are just part of it. You got to, but what I know now (laughs) is and what I would change back then is first of all they're like Igenix will do a Lyme tick test so you send them the tick and then they see if the tick had Lyme in it and so that's a lot cheaper than like their the Igenix full panel with co-infections Lyme test is not cheap it's I think two thousand dollars or eighteen hundred dollars so you don't want to be doing that all the time you know when you get a tick bite but you can send the tick in and if the tick had it that was embedded in you, then, you know, you could go to the next step and say, okay, did I get it from the tick, you know, after a few weeks or whatever. But yeah, that's in, in hindsight, you know, yeah, I, I got around that time I was getting ticks occasionally and you just take care of them and never thought anything of it. But now I definitely, definitely have a different view on it. Wow. Do you know what percent of ticks carry Lyme by chance? I don't, I can't, I don't know if I've seen that data on and off here, but I mean, a lot of people get Lyme, you know, there's the last data I saw on this, which is like the official data, mostly off of like the Western blot Lyme test, which again, we know a lot of false negatives. It was like 270,000 people a year in the United States. And that was like 10 years ago. So, you know, 
a lot of people are getting it. And there's even been documented cases of other insects passing, getting, you know, having Lyme and passing it on to someone. I know one lady that contacted us that said a, a ladybug landed on her arm, felt it bite her, and she got the bullseye and everything and then tested positive. So a ladybug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely something to be thinking about in general with insects and, you know, mosquitoes, definitely ticks. Take, take it seriously. You know, if, if you start having any symptoms or if you get, you don't always have to get the bullseye, you know, you can get it without having that. But if there's any sort of concern around the, the bite area, get it checked out. This is random, but what's that disease that I'm trying to remember what carries it. People were getting it and it was making them allergic to meat. Alpha gal. It's a, that's a tick-borne disease too. Oh, it is tick-borne. Yep. And it's called alpha gal. It makes you basically allergic to red meat. I fear that more than anything in my life. <laughs> oh man. Because <laughs> it's one of the only things I could eat that doesn't inflame me right now. One of the good things about that, is it appears that people after a while, it goes away, reduces and goes away. So it's not like a lifelong thing with alpha-gal anyway. The thing that I found less than, well, the situation itself is not a good thing that the existence of that, but I've seen it posited in like the vegan sphere as a reason that we shouldn't be eating meat. And I'm just like, how is that, how is that relevant? I don't know. Like, I don't know how that even makes sense. Yeah, that's completely random. Like does not correlate. So, okay. So some questions here. Because you talked about how, you know, when you went completely carnivore, it really helps your symptoms. Is that because of the diet's effect on your immune system's inflammatory response? Or is it actually doing anything to combat the actual Lyme infection? Yeah. So my theory on this is that when I started, I don't know, 12, 14 years ago in that range, started doing this full time with Maria, left my job in engineering and became more focused full-time on biochemistry and health. I learned a lot over the years. And then when I got into this situation with Lyme and carnivore, I started researching more into carnivore like six years ago. And I learned a lot. And you know, one of the things I think, my theory at least on this is that when when you have Lyme disease, you've got this chronically depressed immune function. Your Your, your immune system is going crazy. It's constantly fighting because it can't seem to get rid of this infection. This problem is inflammation. And that causes a lot of things to creep up in people with chronic Lyme, things like heavy metals and, you know, mold issues and all of these things that can happen that normally your immune system kind of deals with. But now because your immune system is in this disarray, it's not fighting off these things. So heavy metals build up and other issues can build up and it kind of becomes this onion of peel layers off to fix these problems as you're trying to get the body to, to work the way it should. And the way I look at it with carnivore is, you know, all plants have anti-nutrients and, you know, there's oxalates, there's glucosinolates, there's lectins, there's all these compounds that are in plants that your body doesn't need or want. That's why it's called an anti-nutrient. It's it's not used by the body. The body has to detox it and get rid of it. And it can actually cause issues like, you know, oxalates. If you, you're getting a lot of high oxalate foods, it can cause more kidney stones as they're being detoxed. And 
removed from the body and other issues. So, you know, they're not, plants aren't benign in that respect. You know, they have compounds that the body has to deal with and detox. And for somebody with an immune system like me, with all the load it already has, I think adding that extra load of, you know, these anti-nutrients just causes that extra level of inflammation that the body just can't handle. Do you test inflammatory markers like CRP? There's a reason I'm asking this, by the way. I just actually just today, or at least as we're today as we're recording this, I did a YouTube on our YouTube channel about my labs. So there's a bunch of stuff out there. But to go back to when it, this started, I got that initial Western blot Lyme test. Said, nope, you're not. You don't have Lyme. I'm like, okay, and then started researching, looking at other things, and oh, like six months later, it was just kept getting worse. And, you know, got to the point where I couldn't throw a football if, as far as my eight-year-old son. And granted, he's got a good arm, but, <laughs> you know, I should be able to throw a football farther than him without pain. And I just went to a functional doctor that we knew in town, a friend of ours, and I said, look, I, I'm going to give you a list of tests I want run. I, I know something about biochemistry. I'm going to give you this full list, and I'm, I want all this run to try to figure out what is wrong with me. And... Pretty much everything came back normal except two things. I was anemic, so low hemoglobin levels. And again, eating the way I eat, that should not be happening. And then my CRP was 150. And, you know, C-reactive protein is an inflammation marker. And our clients, we try to get below two, ideally below one. And I was 150. So I knew there was a problem, you know, obviously, and that's around the time I got the hygienics test and started going down the path of trying to treat Lyme. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there.
The reason I'm asking is because I always intuitively feel like I'm inflamed and like that's what I've, and so I always expect my CRP to be high and it's literally a flat line at zero, like literally for years. And I thought that that was common, like people could have flat lines, but I was posting about it on Inside Tracker and one of the main guys at Inside Tracker commented, he was like, I've never seen this before. And I was like, oh, so I was talking with one of my functional medical doctors and she was saying maybe I was just because of all the anti-inflammatory stuff I was doing and low-dose naltrexone and just all the things, I literally have just like turned off all my inflammatory responses. And she was saying that might not be the best thing that maybe I should, you know, like try not, I don't know if you've used low-dose naltrexone before. That's one of the few things that I haven't used, you know, that is definitely on the list of things to try. This last, so I kind of be going through phases, like I try this protocol and go all the way through it and then it, that didn't work try the next protocol go all the way through that and that's kind of where i am right now with the uh SERS treatment i'm doing the chronic inflammatory response shoemaker protocol and low dose naltrexone was another one that i was considering between the SERS, but i definitely have SERS based on my symptoms and tests so i was treating that but yeah i mean the body definitely should have a little inflammation going on at all times like even you know stress and you know sauna and exercise those are all good stressors to the body good inflammation <laughs> so yeah I, I would, i'd be surprised to see a flat line at zero it's super weird but then i'm like i'm like well if it's not broke <laughs> like i don't know don't fix it i'd be really curious if you do try ldn so question about the iron because few questions there. That was actually one of the things when I was talking with Maria that she said I should ask you. I as well was severely anemic and it didn't make sense because I eat, you know, tons of meat and a high iron diet. Out of curiosity, did you, and I know you said you posted about your, your blood work. When you test your iron levels, do you look at all the different factors like hemoglobin and ferritin and saturation or what do you look at most? Or Well, yeah, I mean, I had ferritin and hemoglobin and transferred in. And right now, early on, it was when I was first diagnosed, it was pretty anemic. They're not, it's not as bad now. They're all kind of borderline low. So that's one area that has gotten better for me. It's more still just battling the inflammation and pain and, and inflammation, you know, caused from it. I, the good thing is, and I actually post this in my test, the, my symptoms, it's, it's really hard when, you know, if I was doing all of this seven years ago, you know, a year or two after I got the symptoms, maybe I would be in a completely different place. Maybe I would be treating and seeing the results that a lot of people see with certain treat treatments. I think because I'm so far down the path of this autoimmune disease with ankylosing spondylitis and everything, I, I live in varying levels of pain. And so if a treatment takes me from, you know, an eight to a five, that's a success. <laughs> you know, it's, I'm still in pain every day and varying levels, but if I can get around and I can walk and I can do things, that's a, that's a win for me. And so I'm trying to just get to where that can be a daily thing and, and on a day-to-day -day basis, be at a level where I don't have to rely on any painkillers or those kind of things and just have a level of pain that I can manage without it and still do things. I was there last fall and then some things changed. I'm kind of getting my way back to there, but 
with the uh, Shoemaker protocol, the service protocol I'm doing, that in combination, I've started some bio- biologicals as well. And I think those are definitely getting my inflammation down. I mean, it's showing on the markers. I'm down to, I think it was 0.8 was my CRP on the last test. Wow. Yeah. So, and th- and it, that's as, as recently as, I don't know, 12 to 18 months ago, it was still at like 50. So definitely, definitely some things are working. I still have a lot of pain, you know, so I'm not like, oh, okay, it's all gone. And, you know, you go on with your life kind of thing. But I'm definitely moving in the right direction and the inflammation is showing that. Wow. Do you feel intuitively like you're on an upward spiral or like, how do you feel about your future with this? Well, I mean, again, as advanced as the ankylosing spondylitis is in me, you know, again, most of my neck is fused and it's not going to be one of those things where, oh, it's all going to go away. You know, if I do the right protocols and things, it's my hope is that I can get it to where it doesn't progress anymore. And that's kind of where I'm trying to get to is stop any progression and try to, you know, build strength and whatnot. You know, I can't build flexibility. It's, it's few things, certain things are fused and I have calcium in them like my hip. And so there are always going to be issues, but you know, if I can get it to where it stops getting worse, that's a win for me. Now I'm just thinking about the iron and everything as well, because when I was really anemic, it was so bad. I had to have blood transfusions. Do you know if Lyme can be transmitted through blood? I'm just, I remember when I got that done. I mean, I, I already had Lyme prior to that, but I remember I got that done and I was like, oh, I wonder, I wonder if there's anything I can get from this person's blood, <laughs> you know? I'm not sure, uh, you know, I, I would assume they would do some tests on the blood, but yeah, I'm not sure. Well, especially if they're not you know, the testing is so convoluted anyways. So the question that I had for Maria that she said I should ask you was, I had Dr. Neil Bernard on the show. So he's really, really big in the vegan sphere. We talked about iron and he was saying that the problem with eating iron from animals because of the different, so heme versus non-heme, he was saying that heme iron from animals, the body doesn't have a good like regulatory system for absorbing it properly. And basically it leads to iron overload issues compared to non-heme iron, which he was saying the body is good at getting like the amount that it needs, like creating the amount it needs from that. Do you have thoughts on heme versus non-heme? Don't think that's reflected in humans. I mean, you know, I know tons and tons and tons of carnivores and none of them have iron issues. You know, myself, I was actually low. So yeah, I, I don't think that's reflected in reality. I look at it as the body is pretty good at regulating what it needs and what it doesn't. And I mean, yes, you can have toxicity levels on certain things like vitamin A, but it's, I know the old saying like polar bear liver is so incredibly high in vitamin A that if you ate it, you could, you could get vitamin A toxicity. But it, I think it it's hard to overdo in reality, in, in, in real context, right? Nobody's eating polar bear liver all day. And I, I even know, you know, people that have eaten liver, beef liver, which is quite high in vitamin A as well. They eat two to four ounces, you know, multiple times per week and love it. And it never shown any labs or issues as a result. So I think to me, what the way I look at it is a lot of these things, if the body has more than it needs, it just passes it through you. Kind of like with vitamin C, you take a big dose of vitamin C because you got a cold or something and you urinate out a lot of it because the body just takes what it needs and the rest goes out. And right now, 
the way I look at it with food is I want the most bioavailable forms of any vitamin or mineral or nutrient in, in my diet because then I know my body's going to be able to pull out what it needs. If I'm low, it'll be able to pull out as much as it needs from that food because it's in the most bioavailable form to absorb it. And that's kind of how I look at vitamins and minerals. Okay, so that was the most perfect segue ever because that was the other question she said I should ask you. So I am haunted by this question. Organ meats. I'm so perplexed because like you said, they're they're very nutrient-rich. And so if our bodies intuitively crave nutrients, it would seem to me that we would naturally crave organ meats. And yet people seem to have an aversion to them. And even me, like, so when I was really anemic and I'm like paleo and I love like all the meat and all the things. And so I remember I had a moment where I was like, okay, I know I'm anemic. I realized I hadn't ever had liver like outside of like liverwurst or something like that. So I was like, I'm sure liver is going to taste amazing to me because it's what my body needs right now. And I could not stomach it. And so I'm curious, I have a theory about this, but do you think people's aversions to organ meats as like a, you know, not as a supplement, what do you think is behind that? Is it cultural or what do you think? I think there's a multitude of things there, right? Like, you know, I think a lot of it's in the head, not the body, right? Like you just have an aversion to that texture or whatnot. And I, I'm not so much in on the whole intuitive aspect as, as well. Like there's a very big psychological component to that, that, in, you know, con- confounds things. Like if I crave a donut, it's got because my body needs the donut. <laughs> it's that there's a psychological aspect to it. I really like them and I, I get a dopamine hit when I eat them and those kind of things. So I think there's, you know, multiple components to it like that. I, we have had clients that will actually get cravings for like liver. And, and one of them was while she was pregnant and she was having some low iron issues as, and so I, we have seen it on, on occasion, but the, you know, she already liked the liver otherwise, and she just started to crave it. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. There's so many psychological aspects that can interfere as well or cultural. I think if you look at it from our ancestors, you know, if you go way back past any of the cultural stuff and early humans, they didn't waste anything. You know, they ate everything. They drank the blood. They ate all the organs and all the meat of an animal when they killed it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of psychological, a lot of cultural type aversions. To that point, actually, when I had Paul Saladino on the show, he talked about a study, actually, or maybe talks about it in his book, which this one, I just find it so fascinating. I think they basically looked at, it was vegans or vegetarians who proclaimed or said they did not like meat or had an aversion to meat. And then they would show them meat. And even though they thought they didn't like meat, the part of their brain that signified desire or wanting, I can double check exactly what it was, but it lit up. So like they thought they didn't want it, but like they did. Yeah. It's psychological, you know, brain can really be powerful and how it controls you and digestion, all of it, you know, myself, I, if I still to this day, if I get real nervous about something, I'll have GI issues. You know, it's just the body, the brain really can control a lot of the body. I think it is multifaceted. I do wonder if part of it has to do with like vitamin toxicity and that maybe evolutionarily 
our bodies knew that. Yeah, maybe it don't make it taste like a donut because you'll eat too much <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like you just go to town on the liver and then, you know, have the polar bear liver and wipe yourself out. But but I will note, so it, 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 when you talk about this in humans, let's talk about other animals, right? And this can be where you can see in a in more maybe of our evolved state, you take a take the mind out of it, take the culture out of it, all of that. There's been stories of, like, for example, up in Alaska, when the salmon are really plentiful, the the bear will catch the salmon and just eat the brain and leave the rest of the meat because there's, there's tons of them. There's a bunch of documented cases of orcas attacking great white sharks and just eating their livers. They've been washing up on shore, and it's just their liver that was eaten. There's quite a few cases like that where just the, the most nutrient-dense organs – will get eaten when when things are plentiful or in certain situations. So I think that's, you know, I think animals definitely have that intuitiveness for sure. Do you have any thoughts? I wonder how long, speaking of this intuitiveness, I wonder how long it takes or how much exposure it takes to non-natural foods to um, lose that intuition. You know, like with kids, like how much processed food do they have to eat before that's a huge part of it too is like for example i think in america today we start kids way too early on sweets and so it shifts their palate and we see this all the time you start introducing candy and ice cream and all this when they're like you know an infant you know 6 months old you're you're shifting their palate to that sweet taste and they and it, the more sweet you get the more you need to get that you know taste that hit you got to get more and more our kids we've never started them on any of that we just fed them what we ate you know one of kai's first foods was bone marrow solid foods and to this day he doesn't really have a sweet tooth you know he'll have some berries every once in a while and that kind of stuff but you give him a baked keto good, like a cake or a cookie or something. He doesn't want it. He's got more of a savory palate, you know, and I think that's a huge part of it. You know, you you shift the palate by introducing all these things that you're not going to naturally get in nature. And it's going to shift the palate towards those things. I will say regarding the bone marrow, that was one of the ones I remember the first time I had bone marrow and it was something I thought I was going to have an aversion to. And I was like, oh, wow, this is the most delicious thing like known to mankind. What is this? No, it's, it's a great first food, food for kids, you know, lots of fat for their growing brains. And yeah, it's, it's soft. So it's a good first food. It is delicious. Question about that. How do you feel about people on? Okay, well, first of all, stepping back. Your approach to carnivore and low carb and all the things, how do you feel about, because I know, you know, Maria has a lot of work with the PSMF stuff as well, which is like the low fat side of doing a a carnivore type approach. How do you feel about people existing on the fat spectrum? Is there a potential issue with going too high fat and low carb or too high fat carnivore? Yeah, there definitely is. And we get people, especially women, all the time coming to us who are they, they decided to do the high fat carnivore where they, you know, really high fat and they're gaining weight and they're not feeling their best and, and they're having issues. We have it get, we see it all the time because if you don't, there, there's two main problems with that. Number one, if you're doing it for weight loss, adding 
really high fat to the diet when you're trying to burn the fat off the body is just kind of counterintuitive, right? Like it doesn't, and, and from a biochemistry standpoint, it doesn't make sense. The vast majority of the fat you put in your mouth ends up in your fat cells. And if, if you're trying to shrink your fat cells, lose body fat, adding a bunch of fat to the diet is going to add to the fat cells. So it's pretty counterproductive. Like it's, it's like having a bucket with a hole in the bottom of the bucket and it's with water and you try to make the water run out faster by adding water to the top of the bucket. Like it's not going to empty quicker if you add water to the top. Right. So that's kind of how I look at it with the, on the fat side. And the other side of that, especially with women who are ready across the board, regardless of diet, typically under eat protein and you add a really high fat carnivore where they're getting full and they're not eating enough protein. Now you could be losing muscle as well. And so the combination of those two things is really bad for body composition. You know, if you have insulin resistance, you know, we, we've got multiple videos I've done on our channel about shrinking your, how, how the root cause of insulin resistance is overstuffed fat cells, which become inflamed and resistant insulin resistant at the fat cell and that's how insulin resistance is primarily started and we could get into that if you like it's a whole interesting topic but you know when you are trying to reverse insulin resistance you want to do two things maintain or grow your muscle which gives more places for glucose to go and then you want to shrink your fat cells make them smaller so smaller fat cells are happier fat cells and they're not insulin resistant they're not inflamed and so when you if you think about that, I need the same or more protein on my body and less fat on my body. Would it not make sense to have more protein in the diet and less fat in the diet to move your body in that direction, right? And that's kind of how we look at it. Yeah, I could not agree more. I'm all about the protein, as is Vanessa, obviously. I think, honestly, I think one of the biggest epiphanies I had in my so I, I don't do a keto diet now, but I did historically. And I think the biggest epiphany I had was that, especially when I first got into it, because I got in through like the Atkins route and, you know, so I was doing, it was a, a different type of world. There was all this focus on, oh, you can eat all the fat because fat doesn't release insulin. So, you know, unlimited fat. And then I had the realization one day that the reason fat doesn't quote, release a lot of insulin or require a lot of ins insulin is because it doesn't require a lot of insulin. Basically, it's stored very easily. So like it, it's people took literally the exact opposite interpretation. They took the no insulin to mean like, oh, you can eat all the fat when really it's like no insulin because it's so easily stored. So well, actually, if you look at the data and, and some of the more recent studies and information on this, fat does affect insulin. It's just in a slightly different way. You know, if you, if, if the early studies on this, they give you a dose of protein, dose of carbohydrate, dose of fat, and just look at the insulin after that. And so you're just getting a certain number of grams of fat and nothing else, and a certain number of grams of carbohydrates and nothing else. And it's more complex than that. And even in those studies, there was a little bit of insulin that increased when eating just fat, less than protein and definitely less than carbohydrates, but there was some. But then when you start looking at it deeper, and some of the studies on this now have shown that fat acts kind of like an amplifier for pancreas insulin output. So what that means is, it, and there's been studies on this, they gave the exact same protein and carbohydrate meals 
So same exact same protein and carbs. And they just changed the amount of fat in the meal from 10 to 60 grams. So then if you look at insulin, and this is in, it was done in type 1 diabetics, so you know exactly how much insulin is being required by the body, right? Because it's all external. You can measure it. And so between those two meals, just the fat changed. It went up. And what happens is you get this kind of long tail on your glucose when you have added fat because there's an overall increased load on insulin because of the increased amount of fat. And so the, carbo- the, the blood glucose on these people would stay high longer. And it took, to get things back in line, it took an 42% more insulin over the course of the day to get blood sugars in line for the extra 50 grams of fat with equal protein and carbs. So this shows, number one, fat's not a free food. It does affect insulin. But also, fat can act as an amplifier, and it has to in the body. So this was type 1, so they don't produce insulin, right? In the human body, how the body deals with this, with a properly functioning pancreas, is when there's fat in the lipid, uh, lipids in the bloodstream, so you've eaten more fat in the meal, the pancreas for the same protein or and or carbohydrate eaten, it amplifies pancreas output. And this there's been studies that have shown this as well. It it increases how much insulin is produced for the same protein or carbohydrate. So in other words, you eat the protein with no fat, you get a certain amount of insulin. If you eat the protein with extra fat, the insulin curve will be bigger as a result of that protein. So it sort of amplifies the output. And that's, again, to deal with the overall increased need for insulin with the added fat. So it's not a free food. It, it will affect insulin. And at the end of the day, as you pointed out, it doesn't really matter because it all ends up in your fat cell anyway. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. I am so excited to talk about that. Okay, because people will say 
all the time. Like if you're having carbs, you need to add fat to it to like slow the glucose response. And I've always thought, I just don't know if that's, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. It it creates fat, fat creates kind of a, yeah, it blunts the peak, but it makes it a longer tail. You know what I mean? I, I wish we were on camera here. I could show you what I'm saying. You know, if you, if you eat some carbohydrates, you know, even put it to the extreme, some sugar, it's going to have a, a quick spike and then it's quick back down, right? The fat will make it not spike as high, but it'll, it'll create a really long tail and before it comes back down. So it, it just kind of amplifies the overall. And, and that's part of it too is people looked too much at insulin with meals and they ignore the fasting insulin, that is there all day. And I, I'm in the viewpoint of fasting insulin is a way bigger problem than the insulin from meals there. If you're eating, there's another study again on type ones. Cause again, it's done on type ones. Cause you know exactly how much insulin is required by the body because it's external. But what they did was, so type ones were that were eating low carbohydrate. So these are people eating keto or very low carbohydrate. They looked at how much insulin was required for their basal or their background insulin versus meals. And it was about 20 units on average for the people eating low carb for the background insulin. For that's the insulin all day long, just not eating food, just when you're fasted, what your insulin is, the insulin your, your pancreas is putting out. And then with meals, it was like two units. So about 90% of the insulin required by the body when eating low carb was for background basal insulin, fasting insulin, insulin for when you're not eating. And the reason is because insulin, it, everybody talks about insulin being a storage hormone, and that's one of its jobs. But it's also, I look at it more as a, like a thermostat for your body. It, it tightly controls how much fuel is in your blood at any given time. And so when you're not eating, it's just holding back the floodgates of all the fuel on your body, right? So the fat cells, if you've got, and this is why a lot of times fasting insulin goes up when you get more obese, is because it's got more fat to hold back. And so all day long when, when you're fasted, it's got a, all these fat cells with all this fat in it that it has to hold that fat back from coming into the bloodstream and, and not having that tight control on the fuels in your blood. And at rest right now, we're both sitting here talking. You have about 80 calories of fuel in your entire blood volume. That's all the fat, free fatty acids. That's all the glucose. That's all the ketones, about 80 calories. And so there's a lot of energy to hold back and keep that tight control on the bloodstream with fuels. And insulin is the kind of the net that holds back the fuel in storage. That's kind of a crazy paradigm shift to think that that we exist in that state of holding back the fuel rather than putting in the fuel necessarily. And it's actually kind of similar to something that blew my mind was when I learned that the majority of blood sugar, essentially, it's not directly from our meal, it's from the liver producing it. And even, even in like diabetes, it's the output from the liver primarily that's, you know, creating that. Yeah, I mean, the body, what happens in insulin resistance, what happens in the blood? The blood is going to have higher glucose. 
it's also going to have higher triglycerides. You know, you look at the people that are insulin resistant, they have very high triglycerides. That means there's too much fat in the blood too. And so it's really a breakdown of the pancreas. It's, it's struggling to keep the fuels out of the blood and keep them locked away where they're supposed to be in the liver or the fat cells. And the reason that primarily happens is because Everybody, so this is something called the personal fat threshold. This is where your body, when we're toddlers, our body makes new fat cells, makes more more fat cells. So you accumulate more and more fat cells. And you get to a certain age, you just don't create more fat cells anymore. And you just fill up or empty the ones you have. And that's just a genetics. And it's, it's, that's why somebody can be 110 pounds and be type 2 diabetic because they have very few fat cells and they get stuffed really quickly. And somebody could be 100 pounds overweight and have no signs of insulin resistance because they have a lot of fat cells and they haven't been stuffed yet. This goes back to what I talked about earlier about having smaller, happy fat cells. Because the fat cells you do have, once they get overstuffed and inflamed, it's kind of like a balloon. You can only put so much fat into the fat cell and it's going to burst. So it gets to a point and it rejects insulin says, I don't want to store any more fat in here. I'm going to, I'm stuffed. And so you get too many of these fat cells rejecting in store more fat coming in. And now the pancreas is like, I can't, there's, why is nobody taking up this fat? I'm increasing insulin. I'm increasing insulin. Nobody's taking the fat out of the blood. And so triglycerides go up in the blood and, the, and then fat starts to accumulate in other places where you don't want it, like the liver, the pancreas, around the organs because the fat cells are stuffed. They're not taking fat in anymore. And that is insulin resistant. That's it starts at the fat cells because they start rejecting insulin, become insulin resistant because they can't store any more fat inside of them. Yeah, I think that is so huge because we I think we so commonly associate obesity as like the primary driver or or visible indicator of metabolic syndrome and all these things, but you know, there's a big danger in people who, you know, are not overweight and not obese and are existing in, in this issue where they, they just don't have the fat cells to, to actually safely store that excess energy. And so it's building up and causing the issues. It's interesting to me because it's the exact opposite of where we would be as humans 50,000 years ago, right? The people that couldn't store extra body fat that had very few fat cells, they would have died off. Maybe wiped out. Yeah, because they couldn't they couldn't make it through the winter and you know store enough body fat. But now, but now it's looked at as oh look at them they're so lucky they didn't you know they can eat whatever they want and never gain any body fat. Well, a lot of them a lot of them end up being diabetic down the road, and we get those clients. And it one of them was under 110 pounds, and she was type two diabetic, and she had let it go for so long because she didn't get that response in the mirror. She didn't see herself gaining weight. She let the high blood sugars and the issues go for so long. She burned out her beta cells and now she's type 1.5. She, she can't produce insulin and she's insulin resistant. So it, it's definitely a danger, you know, even at 110 pounds if, if you don't take care of it. I know that's really common or like like the Asian population tends to have this issue genetically. I wonder why the body doesn't adapt like for um you know people who just don't form new fat cells. Well, that's the thing. Well, first of all, the vast majority of people 
don't produce significantly new amounts of fat cells after their toddler. That's why insulin resistance is so common. It, it may take you to get, you might, depending how many fat cells you have, it might take you, you know, you get to a hundred pounds and then you're insulin resistant or 50 or 200 even depends on how many fat cells you have, but pretty much everyone, the, you know, tiny percentages, pretty small percentages of people that don't have that situation going on in their body. There are a few. And I actually did a case study with one of our clients because I, he clearly is one of the few people who can create new fat cells after a certain age. So he's kind of like the, this genetic anomaly that can help prove, you know, a lot of times in it, what they'll do in mice is if they think a gene is causing X, Y, and Z, they'll knock the gene out in, in, in a mice. Turn it off. Yeah. And then see if, okay, X, Y, and Z went nuts. Obviously, you know, this gene was influencing those things. Well, same thing here. If you find the variant where it, it, you know, personal fat threshold works for all, all these cases, if you find the one situation where somebody makes new fat cells, in theory, if personal fat threshold is the, the, the root cause of insulin resistance, that person should show impeccable blood markers with weight, right? Well, he was 645 pounds. And I had him do some blood tests. And he was a super nice guy, went to school with Maria. We've been helping him pro bono because we just really want to help him get healthy. He's lost like 100 and some pounds already. But he, when he's 645 pounds, he did, he did these blood tests. His fasting insulin was three. His fasting glucose was 90. His A1C was 5.6. His triglycerides were 77. His HDL was like 54 at 645 pounds. And that's because he kept making new fat cells and he kept them small and happy. And it, it's just shocking. I mean, and again, back to put, this is not healthy at any size. He, you know, at this size, he's going to have serious health issues and will not live a long life if he doesn't get it turned around. But from a blood standpoint, from a insulin resistant standpoint, he doesn't have insulin resistance and he likely never would. Wow. So just to actually, just to probe further. So you're saying that not to say this is healthy. So where would the issues arise if he is not presenting with? Well, you carry around 645 pounds. You're going to have, I mean, your joints. The mechanical stress. Well, joints, the pressure on the heart, the extra weight. Like there's just a lot of problems that, you know, can occur just from obesity in general. Yeah. Wow. That's, that is fascinating. What are your thoughts on the idea that insulin resistance actually starts at the muscle. So for me, it's it's all it, the vast majority of it starts in the fat cells. It's it's this cascade of events that happens once the fat cells get too stuffed and they're like, I don't want to take on any more fat. And so you think think about that case again. Insulin is going to go. Okay, well I'll go up to get this fat out of the bloodstream. It does not like insulin's role is to keep the bloodstream from killing you, right? Too much glucose, you die. Too much alcohol, you die. Too much fat, you know, triglycerides of 5,000, that's not healthy. You're going to die eventually. You know, all of these things, too much fuel in the blood, pancreas is trying to tightly control it. And when the fat cells are rejecting and now fuels are creeping up in the blood and insulin is going up and up and up, but it's still not going in because the fat cells aren't taking it. 
And that's why it accumulates, ends up accumulating in the liver and pancreas and everything. And as a result, you're going to have glucose go higher too, because insulin is fighting so hard to keep fuels down that it's it, the, the control on the liver will reduce as well. And, you know, more glucose will come out of there too. So it's just, it's in an energy crisis and, and pancreas is, you know, like he's got, he had an insulin of three and, you know, commonly with clients that we have, we see insulin of two or three in that range. People are out there right now with fasting insulins of 20, 30, 40 all day long. And it's because the pancreas just cannot get the fuel out of the blood. Say he did a water only fast. Do you think he could go for like months? I would assume. I mean, there's that that old Minnesota starvation study. I don't know if you're familiar with it, where the guy, it was almost a year, he ate nothing, just water. He lost like a hundred and some pounds and generally okay afterwards. I'm sure he lost a, a decent amount of muscle too. But yeah, I mean, he could go a very long time. Uh, who knows how long? It's pretty remarkable how much energy we, you know, certain humans with certain genetics can store on their body. Yeah. The Minnesota starvation study is, it's, it's weird. Like if you actually look at what they ate, it's not that, especially compared to like diets that people follow today. I don't think we would look at it as starvation. I'm guessing some people didn't eat at all. I think I misquoted. I, I meant the there's, it wasn't the Minnesota starvation. It was, uh, there was a man. It was an old long time ago where he ate nothing for almost a year. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. There's this one man. It was like one, it wasn't, it wasn't really a, even a study. I don't think it was just kind of a one person did this thing under supervision. So speaking of the liver, so these are some of the questions that have haunted me for years in the just low carb keto world, protein, all the things. So gluconeogenesis. So for focusing on protein, we're having more protein the conversion of protein into glucose, do you think it is demand or substrate driven? And how much glucose do we create from protein in any given situation? I think, you know, increases. So there's sort of a, my, my current understanding of it. And this is some of this comes from, I was just had an interview on our YouTube channel with Dr. Donald Lehman, who's probably the primary researcher on protein out there, over 100 papers written over the years. He commented that they've shown that it's there's a kind of underlying conversion of protein into glucose that is like, you know, a certain percentage, I don't know, 10% or something. I think that m might be true as well as the demand-driven side of things, right? So, so there's kind of a baseline of a certain amount that will get turned into glucose. But then if there's demand i.e. you're depleted of glucose in your liver, your body does not does not want to run out of glucose, and all the glucose in the muscles locked away, you can't get it back out, it's going to start increasing the amount of protein that it turns into glucose, right? So there's kind of two, two – for me, it's like a little bit of glucose is always going to be converted, and then on top of that, it can increase how much it converts as well if there's a demand for it, if your glucose is getting too low in your body. And I think this has kind of been shown as well in some of the studies on this, like Bullock and Finney had an athlete study on athletes uh, a while back that they had some athletes that did a carb load after completely, they actually did muscle biopsy to, to show that they've completely depleted their glycogen through like real intense, like three hour workouts. 
and they biopsied them and then they biopsied them 24 hours later and one group did a carb load afterwards and the other one didn't and they had the same glycogen in their muscle afterwards pretty much the same so the there was definitely increased demand there uh, to create glucose and so i'm sure gluconeogenesis just ramped up and increased the amount of glucose made from protein and of course that protein could be dietary protein or protein off your body and that's that's a uh, way i look at it in general is gluconeogenesis is what allows you to be keto in the first place it allows a carnivore diet to exist right because there's certain parts of the body that have to run on glucose your red blood cells have no mitochondria so they have to burn glucose there's certain brain neurons and heart tissues that run on glucose and so if you're eating no carbohydrates or very low carbohydrates gluconeogenesis is what allows you to be keto or carnivore because it makes up the glucose that you need for those other body parts. So I don't look at it as a problem. I look at it as, you know, enabling this kind of lifestyle to begin with. Wow. And do you think it's a quote, stressful process for the body at all to engage in? That's what people in the forums will say. They'll be like, it's stressful for you. I would say the baseline stuff we talked about. No, because it's always happening, whether you're eating low carb or not. And, you know, you're always getting some conversion there. That's kind of the baseline. I would say if you're getting to the point, and this is where you could bring bring up rabbit starvation, you know, with rabbit starvation, there's one thing to be clear about. And that is that rabbit starvation is not when you just eat protein in the diet for anybody. It's when you just eat protein, no carbs or, or very little carbs or fat in the diet. And there's very little carbs or fat on the body. Okay, so if you're a lean person and you eat nothing but lean protein, this can be a problem because it you, now you're relying on gluconeogenesis to create all of the fuel for the body, and that's a very energy intensive process. And you know it takes a lot of energy to do it, and you're burning so much energy to create fuel for the body that body kind of comes into a energy starvation situation. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can 
have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I am obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes, all the time, with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous and they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at melanieavalonscloset.com. That's melanieavalonscloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's melanieavalonscloset.com. I went through like a time when I was really obsessed with the concept of gluconeogenesis and I would just like read all the forums and there's just so, it's just funny. It's a really interesting world to exist in. I'm super curious. So your, your newest book, Carnivore Cookbook, that's the newest book, correct? Actually, uh, I got to think about it. Or is there a new one since then? The Protein Sparing Modified Fast Cookbook is one that we put out recently, I think about a year and a half ago. And there's this Sugar-Free Kids also, I think, since then. I read her PSMF cookbook and the carnivore cookbook. Very cool about the kids one. Our latest book in general is an ebook that we produce called Carnivore for Weight Loss. Oh, that's the one. That's the one. Okay. That I just read. Okay. Okay. I was getting confused. Cool. I'm curious for that one. So carnivore for weight loss, when you came up with the different levels, because there are four different levels that you have for people that they can follow. So level one is basically all beef. Why do people respond differently to different animal proteins? Like why is beef this magical, this magical thing? Beef is kind of the perfect food for humans in my view, because it's just, it's got everything we need. You know, it's got all the vitamins and minerals in their most bioavailable form. It's got the amino acids, it's got the fats. And, and in general, it's typically the least, you know, if somebody's sensitive to some food or allergic to some food, beef is from, from a true, not just aversion or I don't like it, beef is one of the lowest foods there is as far as any sort of sensitivity or, or anything like that. Unless you've got, again, the alpha-gal thing, that kind of throws a wrench in, in the, if you've got a disease or a parasite like that. So that's why we started there is because it's, you know, it kind of creates a situation. First thing we say in the book is, you know, what's your why? Why are you doing carnivore? Because if it's for autoimmune disease, if it's for bipolar or you know certain conditions, then you kind of want to do it as an ultimate elimination diet. You want to go right to beef and salt, then add in different foods to see your body's sensitivity to them. Or you know, chronic Lyme disease is another reason to try it. Is find 
find foods that will make you flare up and do it one at a time and use it as an elimination protocol. And that's why we wrote it that way. If you're just doing it for general health, you can do any level you want. <laughs> you don't really have to go to level one of beef and salt if you don't have any health issues. I was curious for eggs, why you don't separate the the protein and the, and the yolk. Do you, do you find some people react to one aspect of that, not the other ever? That's interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, th- what we always tell people with kids is if they're young, under two years old, just do the egg yolks, not the whites. But yeah, I'm not sure what the reason is behind that. I haven't really looked into that too much. Yeah. I'm, I'm just so interested about people responding to different things. So, so do you primarily exist in level one in the, the beef? I've over the years, I've, I've found the things that don't bother my body. <laughs> so most animal proteins are fine. I haven't really found any animal protein that I can't eat. There are certain other things I can eat like mushrooms and which are kind of a cusp species anyway, cause they're not really a plant, not really an animal, but you know, those seem to be fine. A little bit of maybe onion or tomato here and there is okay, but I've kind of found what works for me and then just stick with that. Do you test your lipid profile levels and ApoB and things like that? I have. That was in my thing. I think my total cholesterol is like 204 triglyceride. I have to look at it again. I can't remember what the num- exact numbers were, but all all in, in good ranges. Actually, I think it was below 200 at one, the last time. So definitely, even by traditional standards, good numbers. I'm haunted now by the cholesterol panel questions. And Have you tested ApoB? I have, but I can't remember what the number was. I think it was a little just on the high side. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, the reason I'm fascinated is multifaceted. I listen a lot to Peter Atia, and he's big in the camp that basically, I literally, he literally said on the last podcast I listened to that if you want to assure not getting cardiovascular disease, you're probably going to have to be on pharmaceuticals at, at some point. And yeah, so I'm just haunted by this question of like statins and cholesterol, and especially with a keto and a carnivore diet, people, a lot of people will see like really high LDL, but they'll say that they have high HDL, so it's protective. And yeah, and I think Dave, Dave Feldman is definitely doing some interesting work here. He's got some studies that he's doing, looking at what he calls lean mass hyperresponders. So these are people that have very high LDL, like 250, 300 LDL, and then, but they have really good HDL, really low triglycerides. You know, every other health marker is fine. And he's doing calcium scores on them. So they do, they're scanning their arteries and they're doing it over the course of a couple of years to see if there's any progression of, you know, the, the theory would be if you got, you know, LDL of 300, you should be developing plaque, right? That's the theory. And he's, by using calcium scores and CIMTs to, to measure how much ar- arterial thickness and stuff there is, they are looking at that exact question. And I think that will bring some light into the situation. If, you know, maybe there's an alternate factor that if X, Y, and Z are all great, but just LDL is off or, you know, one of these cholesterol markers are off and everything else is fine. Maybe that's a, an edge case where you don't have to worry about it as much. Yeah. I just, I want to know. And like my panel, I'm like super low in everything. So that like my LDL is like 49. Oh, wow. My total cholesterol is like 100. And my HDL, though, is also low. It's 40 right now, or last time I checked. But I'm like, does it matter if everything else is really low, too? So, yeah, I'm just (laughs) haunted by this. 
There's interesting data. I mean, first of all, the people that have heart attacks, half of them have what are considered normal cholesterol levels. So it's kind of 50-50 whether you have a heart attack. You could have normal and have a heart attack and high and have a heart attack. So it's like 50-50. And then there's also data that shows that really low cholesterol, you know, people that have, again, not to scare you or anything, they definitely not, couldn't, it's not necessarily your case. But in general, people that have cancer have lower cholesterol. And I think part of that is because cholesterol is your body's firefighter. It puts out inflammation, right? And if you have a lot of inflammation, it's working hard. And so your levels are going to be depleted because it's working on fighting all that inflammation. And that might be why my cholesterol is on the lower side compared to others that eat this way is because I have so much inflammation in my body. I'm just so fascinated by it. I just, I feel like, not like I feel like we should know more, but I almost feel like, I don't know, it's just so inconclusive and there's so many debates. So I'll be really curious about, about the future of all of it. Yeah. And I went down the rabbit hole. I interviewed Dr. Joel Kahn. He's a big vegan cardiologist. His book is about LP little a, which I didn't even know about. So I learned all about that. And so I don't know, I'm just, I'm haunted by it. And I, I do think it's something big in the I guess that the high LDL presentation tends to happen more in the carnivore keto sphere. So I'm very interested in it. I am too. And, and I definitely want to see what happens with, with Dave's outcome with his studies because you know, I, I contributed to it because I think it's, it's all being like crowdfunded basically to do these studies. So I think it's important to get the data out there. When did you say that started or the study? At Low Carb Denver, which is earlier this year, he announced this, the second phase of the study where they're actually going to move forward looking at the this group and ra- randomized controlled trial of randomizing a, a standard group of non-keto carnivore people, non-lean, nice hyper responders, as well as the group with 100 people in each. And they're going to look at their calcium scores over time and compare. Wow. Well, it's kind of similar analogy to, as far as talking about like normal blood lipid levels, but then having heart attacks, it's kind of like on the brain front, like the plaque or not plaque and the Alzheimer's and the dementia. So that's a whole nother rabbit hole. But in any case, yeah, this has been absolutely amazing. So right now, are you working on another book at the moment or what are you doing? Myself, I'm not really working on any book. Maria is putting together a holiday book. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Holiday recipes for different holidays and stuff. So that'll be kind of fun. I love the idea. That's so fun. With your kids, I see them on Instagram and I see all the content and I hear you guys talk about them. Do you encounter really any obstacles raising them in this lifestyle? Yeah. I mean, we homeschool, so that helps a lot. But you know, in general, I think with kids, I think the most important thing is that you give them the tools and education to make better choices. You know, being like strict and like, don't eat that. You can and not explaining it to them. Not under, you know, it's just going to seem restrictive to them. If you explain to them that this is what this is going to do in your body, and if they do have some of that food, talk to them after about how they feel, and maybe they don't feel so good, and connecting the the food with how they feel, and just educating them on it. I think that's the key. I love that. I love that so much. Well, thank you so much. And so for listeners, because you guys have so many books and resources, listeners can go to melanieavalon.com slash keto adapted, and you can use the coupon code melanieavalon and that will get you 10% off site-wide. So thank you so much for that. 
So the last question I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? You know, family. I mean, I don't know. I just, this disease I have, this problem I have, it's made me appreciate what I do have, what I am still able to do and hopefully be able to continue to do in the future. And so spending time with the family, doing things with the family, I think is, is one of the things I'm going to be focusing on more in the future for sure. Well, I love that so much. And thank you so much for what you're doing, especially, you know, going through that journey and using it to not only, you know, heal yourself, but share really empowering information with others. And you guys just create so many incredible resources and are changing so many lives. So I really can't thank you enough for your time and everything that you're doing. Well, thank you so much, Melanie, for having me on. All right, Craig, have a good rest of your day. I'll I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.